0: When I was a teenager, there was a comedian that was very popular named Emo Phillips. Does anybody remember Emo Phillips? Or am I the only? Oh, good. We have a couple. Oh, really? Okay. I feel better. I feel this is good. So we have some Emo Phillips members. Now, it does bother me that the younger people don't remember Emo Phillips. which just kind of ages me a little bit. But Emo was a comedian. And he, he talked like this. And he always had a lot of observations about the world that were just really funny to hear. And he was the opposite of me. I talk fast, he talks slow, but he was fun. And he had a clip, Emo had a clip about a man that he came across who was about to jump off a bridge. I think it was the Golden Gate Bridge or something. And Emo has this whole dialogue with him about to not, you know, trying to save him from jumping. And about the last half of that conversation, that, that bit, he, he, he tells this story. I'm going to tell it like it's me because I'll tell it like like Emo told it, like his first person here. But I'm not going to try to use his voice, because that's not me. But the story goes, I came to this man, and he's on the edge of the bridge. And I said, well, certainly, are you a man of faith? And the man said, well, I do believe in God. And I said, me too. I said, are you a a Christian or Jew? He said, well, I'm a Christian. So am I. I said to him, are you a Protestant or a Catholic? He said, well, I'm a Protestant. I said, me too. Are you, uh, what what franchise? And he said, Well, I'm Baptist. I said, So am I. Uh, Are you Northern Baptist or are you Southern Baptist? And he said, I'm Northern Baptist. I said, Me too. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, well, I'm a Northern Conservative Baptist. And I said, so am I. Are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or Northern Conservative Liberal Baptist? And he said, well, I'm Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. (laughs) Me too. This is great. Wait. Are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern Region? And he thought, He said, Well, I'm a Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region. And I said, Me too. I said, Are you a Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879? Or are you a Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? And he said, Oh, I'm a Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And I said to him, Die, you heretic! And I pushed him off the bridge, right? And that brings me to my topic today. We are in a sermon series called Eclipsed, how we block the light that we are called to reflect. And uh, I'm just going to say this here at the beginning, and I'm just going to make this disclaimer to those in person online. This series has been a lot for me. And this message is, this is the heavy, this is the, not the heaviest topic. We got some, we're covering some heavy topics in this series. But this is the, this is the most, there's, there's a lot in this message. And I'm going to take, I'm going to, I've preached it a couple times before today. And I preached it once today already. It's not as short as I wish it was. But here's what I'm going to say. When I'm done preaching, we're basically done. We sing our songs earlier we're probably not going to give you questions to take home today. We have questions to take home, but for sake of time, we're probably going to post them online. So go to our Facebook page or our In the Loop group, and you can find the questions online. I'm probably not going to give you a task this week. When I'm done preaching, we'll have one song for about three minutes, and we're gone. So if I'm going long at the end, just remember, when I'm finished, we're basically done for the day. It won't be anything extracurricular after my sermon today. But i got a lot to say, and it's going to run up... Uh, it's going to be a full time here. This, can I be blunt as, I, as I'm detracting from the sermon, this series has been very challenging for me on a, on a personal level. I have found it to be physically and emotionally draining because I am talking about some big things that pertain to how we've eclipsed our main message. Basically, we were, this, is not, this is not an easy series to preach or deliver, because I know I'm stepping on toes. It's much easier. I can't wait to go back to preach from 1 Corinthians and do a Bible study exposition or something, right? But this is what we're doing right now. And it needs to be done because the, the, the American church and the modern church has gotten so far off of being the moon we're called to be that we've got to address the problem again. And so... I'm tackling, I mean, this is kind of a negative in a way, but it's a positive series because it helps us figure out how to get out of the way so we can reflect God's light, like the moon's supposed to do, reflect the light that is Jesus and his message into a world that needs to know it versus getting in between God's light and the message by our other issues. And so we're hitting the issues. And it's not easy. In fact, any given week, it might be the week that you find it to be uncomfortable for you. You might agree with some weeks, and then other weeks, they're like, oh, now he got in my business, you know. We're getting it. This is the series to get in our business. And we talked about politics a couple of weeks ago, about Christians being political and, and being toxic about their politics and driving half of their audience away from the message because we're arrogant jerks about our politics. We talked about that. We talked about other stuff last week. We have some very big topics to cover, and at some point in the series, at least once, i will probably offend you. And today's a mouthful. I'm covering two conversations in one, and I couldn't divide them into two because the back half of today's talk is the heavy part. I need the first part to set it up. So it's just going to be a lot. And I usually walk away from these things physically and emotionally drained. I feel like it's it's a spiritual battle but I hope it's because we're trying to pierce through our darkness of how our church can be the moon we're called to be, to be for our community, as Christ is for our community. So if today's topic is uncomfortable for you, I'm asking you to put your filter aside and just be open-hearted. The first half won't be so bad, but it will get worse as we go. Throughout my years as a Jesus follower and in church leadership, I've noticed something about many churches and Christian people that frequently eclipses our central message. In fact, this whole series is about things that eclipse our central message of God's good news in the world we live in because they see us seemingly closer to them and we're about the wrong things and so it blocks our main message. So, a lot of things this whole series is about. But today, one I've noticed in particular that I want to address today is our church polity differences and denominationalism. Church polity can refer to a lot of things. Some churches, they talk about how they do their titles. Do you have bishops? Do you have elders? Do you have apostles? Do you have evangelists? Do you have deacons who can serve in those roles? It could be a style of leadership. Are you elder-led, pastor-led, deacon-led, congregational-led? It could be, a, it could be um, you know, structure. When do you meet? How do you do? do you have groups? Do you not have groups? Do you have a midweek service? Or do you, uh, it could be uh, what your missions are all about. Um, it could be your liturgy. Do you have liturgical elements in your service? Are you an attractional model? It could be um, things, you know, like how often do you uh, partake of certain, you know, ordinances, uh, polity differences can include, do you do expository preaching or topical preaching or textual preaching or all of the above? These are all the things that people fight over sometimes within churches on a macro level. Not individual churches that are fighting over their chandelier styles. That's another conversation. But, you know, fighting over big macro issues of how the church ought to run. And that's what causes a lot of our denominationalism. A lot of your Christian denominations believe the same big message, that Jesus is the Son of God he he died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day and that brings salvation brought god's message of salvation uh, through his sacrifice and that uh you know we're saved by grace through faith uh, alone not of works most of us believe that at the core usually denominationalism we fight about how we run the church and sometimes, if we're real dogmatic type people, we'll say, well, if you don't see this part of how the church should run the same way I do, then I think you're doubting the gospel, so therefore you don't even believe in the gospel. And we get real dogmatic and ugly because we want to make the bigger, the issues that we care about as we're that way, to be the big issues. But most denominations are, are, in Christianity are the same on the big ones. But we have polity differences. And I sometimes liken the Christianity world to a nation, it could be our nation or a different nation, that fights inwardly with each other over politics and over how to run the nation, while they have threats all around them on the outside, and they're oblivious to the threats because they're they're busy focusing on control of their own, who controls our nation, my team or your team. And sometimes we even almost cheer for the threats to make the other team look bad and all that kind of bad stuff. And when that kind of thing happens, it's because they forgot the greater mission is we are one, they're one nation. That could be stronger together against outside threats than if they're divided and fighting each other and weaker for an outside threat to overtake. And that's how church world can be sometimes. One reason that so many Christians and denominations hone in on the particulars of how we do it and divide over them is because we forget the macro mission. And so while we're fighting about the other stuff, people who—and the atheists are being loud about their views, and the God-haters are being loud, and people are lost and confused and searching, we're not making headway because we're busy forgetting the macro issue and fighting about how to best run the organization. And, and meanwhile, they're like, well, the Christians can't even agree with each other, so they have nothing to offer, and we're weakened by our internal politics, just like the nation is weakened by its, in its political teams, Right? So shortly before Jesus was arrested and crucified, he met in the upper room with his disciples and he gave them a new commandment. And I want to say this before I get into it because we sometimes hear him talk about the great commandment. Jesus didn't give the great commandment, by the way. The great commandment was when Jesus was approached one time and asked by some religious person to basically pick of all the Hebrew scriptures, or the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures pick the most important command. What's the greatest commandment in those ancient passages? And Jesus said, I'm going to give you two instead of one, because the two go together. He said the entire law is based upon love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And those two go together, and they basically summarize the entire, entire entirety of all the hundreds of laws and prophecies and other things before. That's the, great, that's the great commandment. And Jesus didn't give that. Jesus answered that. Jesus answered that question when asked to summarize the Hebrew Scriptures. But when Jesus was about to be arrested and crucified as he took the Lord's Supper and Passover with his disciples, he actually said, I'm going to give you a new commandment, which is pretty brash and audacious because you don't give new commands. They already had Moses. But he was saying, someone greater than Moses is, is here, and I'm going to prove it on the, on the cross. So he gave a new commandment. In John eight thirteen and verse 34, Jesus said, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. And in case that feels touchy-feely to us, like vague, what does love each other mean? Oh, I love everybody. He says, just as I have loved you, he's qualifying it. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. In other words, in the same way. And that was not touchy-feely, that was gritty. That was going to the cross and it was serving mankind throughout his life and in his death. It was sacrifice. It was doing what needs to be done at all costs to help other people be saved. As I have loved you, that's the pattern by which you're to love each other, to sacrifice for each other, to serve each other, to care for each other, to forgive each other, to be kind to each other, to, to support each other. As I have loved you. That was his new commandment. And you say, well, what about the part about loving God? That was part of the great commandment. But Jesus was saying it's, it's the same thing. And I've, always, I've often said the Christian message is believing or having faith that God loves us, that's salvation shown to us through Christ having faith in God's love for us, and because of it, the way we love him is we love each other the way he loved us. That's why Jesus gave this clear, one simple new command. Then he died. Three days later, he rose again. Forty days after being appearing to hundreds of eyewitnesses, he's getting ready to ascend back into heaven and to, and to be gone until the end. His very last words before going back to glory, his last words spoken on earth 2,000 years ago, he gave what we call the Great Commission, which is summarized in a few different places. Uh, Luke, we saw a couple of weeks ago, Luke says that Jesus said to be witnesses about him and what he did to the farthest parts of the world. Um, Mark says to preach the good news to everybody. And Matthew records this great commission of Jesus, his last words, this way in Matthew 28 in verse, oh, I'm sorry, I, I missed a verse, didn't I? Go back here. I want you to see a verse in the New Commandment because this is so important. I, I hate to dial back, I'm out, I'm out of order now. But when Jesus gave the New Commandment, here's what he said, and we can't miss this. He says, your love for one another, this is so big, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. He says your love. In other words, it's not your church polity. Don't miss this now. It's not your church structure. It's not your better your better doctrine. It's your love for one another that's going to prove to the world that needs to see the light of the sun reflecting off of you. What will prove to the world that you're my disciples, that you're really from God, that you have my message. It's your love that will prove you're authentic. That's a big deal. Then he gave the Great Commission before he left the heaven. Matthew 28 says this, Jesus came, told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He says this, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, And teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So again, we see in all three of the iterations of this that they're supposed to go preach, make disciples or preach the good news, bring people to faith in Christ. Once they do that, baptize them. And once they're baptized, teach them to do the same, which is what? The things he just told them to do. Go bring the good news of Jesus' love to other people. And when they believe, that, has them and teach them. In other words, keep this thing going, person after person, generation after generation, and then an X to the furthest parts of the world. And they did it, by the way. They did that, didn't they? That's why 2,000 years later, on the other side of the planet, here we are still worshiping Jesus. Because they did exactly, exactly that. Now, what Jesus said before his death was he gave a new commandment and the Great Commission. New Commandment and Great Commission. In other words, Jesus' party instructions were this. Go spread the news of God's love and God's salvation, and while you do, love each other so the world will, will believe and so the world will accept it. They will see that you mean business because of your love as you spread the message. Go be the moon. Those were his marching orders. He had earlier said that he was going to build his church or his assembly on who he was. And so after he left, the church would indeed come to pass, built upon this commission of preaching his good news and loving each other so the world would believe that we really are from God. Now, if you want to look at the new, the, what we call the Christian scriptures, or the New Testament is another word that was given to it a few centuries after Jesus. The Christian scriptures, um, basically this is what they're all about. The Christian scriptures begin with four different accounts of Jesus' life, followed by the book of Acts, which was a comment it was a historical a historical record of how that early church did what Jesus told them to do, how they formed, how the people they spread the good news of Jesus, people believed, they assembled as they assembled, they had to organize themselves. They had to figure out their problems. As they grew, they had a growing pains. They had to figure out their growing pains. They had to scatter and bring the place to other, other cities and places. It's the historical record of how they did what Jesus told them to do when he said go spread the message and love each other. And the epistles, do you know what the epistles are? The epistles from after Acts and through the rest of the New Testament, the epistles are correspondence records between early church leaders to the churches or to other individuals that we can read to understand more historical context of how they did what Jesus told them to do, which is to spread the good news of the gospel and love each other as he loved them. Now, it's kind of like if you are, I love history, so if you studied American history, one of the ways you'd understand our country's history is to look at the history of the battles and the presidents and who did this, but also to read the, the diaries of, of founding fathers or the correspondence between Abigail Adams and John Adams or Thomas uh, or, or Benjamin Franklin's writings in a paper. These writings or these correspondences also give historical context as much as the history facts do of how our nation came to be, right? So in the scriptures, you see the same thing. You have Jesus saying, here's who I am, go do this. And then Acts is the historical record, and the epistles are the correspondences of how they did that, describing how that looked in different places. And by the way, it was different in every place a little bit. Not the message, the main message was the same, but how things went from place to place where they went. Now, this is a big deal. Essentially, don't miss this now, essentially the epistles were largely about how that the new believers were getting the new commandment wrong about how they loved one another. A lot of the teaching is basically, here's how you're supposed to one another one another, according to what Jesus said. And it's the big stuff. It's the the how you live stuff. So the epistles largely were about how they were getting the new commandment wrong and how it was getting in the way of the Great Commission to spread God's message so that the world would believe. And I think that today we have the same problem. In fact, one thing that gets modern Western churches in trouble is our failure to look back at that and distinguish between what I call what is prescriptive versus descriptive. Prescriptive meaning prescribed, take this pills three times a day. And descriptive being, here's how that looked. So prescriptive, Jesus said, love one another as I've loved you so that your message will be effective and then go spread God's message of salvation to everybody. And then we see how that, we have the description of how that went in Acts. The challenges they faced in a, in a different time and place. Their challenges were unique. For example, the, church were, the, church, the world was very different then. Uh, in, in Jerusalem, they had a temple. because The old religion had temple worship. We don't have a temple like that. There's a central hub. So they would go to the temple daily, try to have meetings and gatherings there. They'd go from, to houses, eventually got expelled from the temple. Eventually the temple was destroyed. Then they went to other cities. They would would go to the synagogues. Synagogues were places where Jewish people who were scattered for centuries before would would build synagogues in the non-Jewish or the Gentile cities where they lived. And these synagogues were places of worship and commerce, by the way. So on the Saturday, which is the Sabbath day, they would rest. But on the first day of the week or Sunday, they'd gather for religious worship. And then from there on, they'd even use the building multi-purpose for other commerce after worship. So it was a place for, for, for worship and, and other such things, which we don't necessarily do in American churches because that's not how we do our church buildings, but that's how they did it back then in synagogues. So as the Jewish people would go into, or I'm sorry, as the Christians would go into these places, they'd go to the synagogues and they would say, hey, while we're here, you're talking about God. Let me tell you about Jesus. And sometimes the synagogue would be full of people who believed on Jesus and they would establish a new body of believers assembled there or a church there. And sometimes they would just organize from there. Other times they'd be kicked out of the synagogue. They'd have to find someone's house to worship in who believed in that city. Or they'd have to go down by the river to pray, you know. They just figured wherever they could go. Temple until they couldn't, synagogues until they couldn't, houses until they couldn't, wherever they could go, they just kind of... People believed they would assemble, they would learn to spread through their synergy the message more effectively, and they would learn to love each other and get past their personal problems that humans have, as Jesus told them to do, while they spread the message. And it's a description of how it looked in the first century. It was a different world. People sometimes, uh, synagogues had different kinds of forums. Kind of like today, people have certain kinds of forums that are town hall forums. Others have keynote speakers or TED Talks. There's all kinds of different forums and how you might have an organized meeting. And there were some unique gatherings in synagogues, perhaps different in houses. It all varied. But the prescription was the same, to spread the good news to everybody and to love one another as you do so that you're effective. And we read the description in the correspondence and the history book of Acts. And many denominations fight and argue over the description, not the prescription. We most always agree on the prescription, what Jesus told us to do, but we argue about how it looked 2,000 years ago in the Middle East and how it's supposed to look today. And I think that that's not the point. By the way, if you're here today and some of you are like, I don't even get what you're saying, Arlen, these words. But some of you, if you're really a die-in-the-wool dogmatic type religious person, you're like, well, Arlen, it's all prescriptive. You don't believe that. I've never met one single person, no matter how religious they are, who believes that everything in the Bible is all prescriptive. I never have. I have people who say that, but I can always take them down to any spot, Old Testament, and New Testament, and have them explain something and they'll say, well, that's talking about this, but that means that. Everyone does it. I've never met a single person who, who, who you can't get to do that if they're honest with you. I'm just, the problem with me is I'm actually saying it out loud. I'm saying the quiet thoughts out loud today, you know. Don't do that. You don't say the quiet thoughts out loud. But everyone believes that. We just argue about where you draw the line. So let me give you an example of a case where Christians in denominations can fight. First, First Timothy is a story where Paul writes to young Timothy about how the early church should operate. And he tells the early church, he's telling Timothy, a young man who's pastoring in Ephesus, by the way, how to lead the church. And here's what he says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. When it comes to appointing leaders, when it comes to appointing people in church leadership, this is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. In the following verses, Paul is going to give some Basically, a vetting process, which everyone ought to have a vetting process. So when you hire employees at Veto's, which is opening this week, by the way, when you hire employees at Veto's, you probably vet them to make sure that, you know, you know, they are going to be a good fit, right? So vetting process. Paul gives Timothy a vetting process to find church leaders. But, but oftentimes, the first step is missed. The first step in the vetting process was, do they aspire to be? Do they even want to be? See, I grew up in a church culture where we were told that every young person ought to go to full-time Christian service and be a church leader if they loved God. But the problem with that is that does not, that's, that's, not everyone's wired that way. And, and Paul says the first process in vetting is, do they even want to be? If they don't want to be, then go do something else that's honorable. Who cares? But if they want to be a church leader, okay, that's step one. Then he gives other qualifications, now it's interesting, I love the NLT. We're going to look at a couple of different translations today. I love the NLT here because it says if they aspire to be a, a church leader, it says church leader. Some translations will translate that word to be bishop. They desire to be a bishop. Some translate it to be elder. Some translations translate it to be bishop and Timothy. And then the same list in Titus, another pastoral epistle, is elder. Which is it? Where the apostles fit in here. And church is a fight about terminologies with each other. What are your titles in your church? In fact, I had a person one time come to me and they were all feeling so superior. They said, Arlen, there's a church I know of and they call their pastors like the executive pastor and the chief operations officers and stuff like that. Can you believe they use these worldly terms for their church leadership structure? And I'm like, so? Like, well, that's not the Bible. I said, oh, does your church, so does it, our church that you like, do we have bishops? Well, I was, no. Well, why are we not Biblical. Well, no, no, no. you're going to explain it away to me, but it's just a term. Who cares? I think you're arguing about the descriptive. I think you're arguing about how that 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, in the synagogues and churches they had, they figured out how to put together, and you're fighting about terms that were translated thousands of years later and arguing about what word means this in the Greek. Here's the bottom line. It was a description, and here's what we take from it. We take from it that it was important 2,000 years ago, just like it is important today, to organize effectively. That's the takeaway. you got to have effective organizational structure to run anything well. you got to have a vetting process also, but to argue about terms, that's dumb. Have it called bishops, apostles, elders, evangelists, you know, shepherds, Chief cook and bottle washer or anything. Sometimes I want to go to churches and say, get rid of all the titles and let's just go with new ones. I want to be the, let's say, someone could be the head oompa and others could be the lumpas, you know. Let's just make all new terms because obviously we're worried too much about these words. And I think that we're arguing over the description and missing. And when churches get busy doing that, they forget the prescription, which is to spread the good news and to love one another. So the world will believe instead of seeing the world watching us and seeing us fight over things that are less important and saying, "Well, how do they? How could they help me find God? They can even agree with each other over things that are less important than the main thing." Many get lost in the weeds of titles and structures. By the way, it was different back then. So, well, we should take every bit of it as to heart today. Do we? Here's a question. if if everything that was said to Ephesus is there as a prescriptive word for us, if everything said to Philippi or Corinth was a prescription for us, instead of a description of correspondence of how they followed Jesus' prescription, if it's all that way, here's my question. Why did Paul write so many different epistles? Why did he say something different to Ephesus than he did to Philippi? Why something different to Corinth than he said to Rome? Why did he not have one letter called the, the Epistle of Paul, and everyone gets the same copy? Because the people in Ephesus had different problems than the people at Philippi. The people at Rome had different problems than the people at Corinth. And he's saying, let me address your unique congregational issues. It's the historical record as the church explodes in Jerusalem and everywhere of the problems that they had to overcome to grow, to be effective, to represent the gospel, and to love each other while doing it. And they all had unique challenges. The truth is they had different letters and they didn't have copies. They didn't have printing presses. It was 300 years before most of the New Testament was assembled officially together. After Jesus was gone, before they assembled these things together in one book, and even then there was no printing press for a thousand years, and most people couldn't read anyhow. But the point is, is that in every single place where people believed on Jesus, they addressed the problems to that place. And so it's the same way that a church in Cedar Lake might need different sermons today about how to be Christ-like than believers might need to hear in Indianapolis in a different kind of church, in a different kind of group of people. And different people in Singapore might need something else to challenge their faith. It's not that the message changes or the mission changes, but sometimes the details of what each group needs are different. And we read the record, the description of these various churches with various different instructions, not the same instructions, but the same major message. Prescriptive versus descriptive. And many get lost in the weeds of titles and structure, and who cares? Effective organization is really all that matters. Or in other words, the main thing, is to keep the main thing, the main thing. That's an old colloquialism, right? We've all heard it before, that applies to the gospel. Or I could say it this way, there's a difference between the mission and the model. The model might look different from time to time, the methods might look different from time to time, but the mission never changes. What Jesus prescribed is eternal. Go preach the gospel of God's love and bring people back to him, that God wants people back more than he wants them to pay, so he paid for them, That's what Jesus did on the cross. And and, and his arms are open wide. Spread the message of salvation. And love one another as you do so that you'll have an effective message instead of a divided one. That was the prescription. That's the mission. And we can argue over the model. But models change and methods change and cultures change and times change and technology changes. Even in our own history as a country, circuit riding preachers were a thing at one time, and all day gatherings for an entire day were important because by the time you got yourself miles down the road with your with your mule, you just stayed all day. And, and cars have changed things, and technology has changed things in the world, but the model might change, but the mission never changes. And when people get hung up on the model over the mission, we've lost our way. And if we're gonna fight with other churches for a different model with the same mission, and we ignore our same mission to fight over the model, we've lost our way. So be open handed with the things that are not essential to the gospel. Be open handed with the things that are not essential to salvation. So, in other words, you know, within your own body of believers, don't fight about things that are methods related. This is dumb. Fight for the mission. Find a place where you can find that if you, if you like a certain model better, that's okay. Find a place where you like the model. We live in America. There's lots of ice cream flavors in the, in the, in the ice cream shop. Pick one you like, you know. But, but, find, but, but, but don't fight over the model. And don't criticize other churches and other denominations. Don't say, die, you heretic. Or something less than that because you're simply saying, well, I just don't agree. I'm, I'm not going to be that mean. I'm just piously better than them, you know. Just stop it. What's mission and what's model? What's prescriptive and what's descriptive? So I want to spend, that, that's really the sermon. You're dismissed. No, you're not. I'm just kidding. The rest of our time, and again, I need your help because here all that was set up so I can say what I'm going to say next, and this is where it's going to get tough. And for some of you, I need you to take your filters and put them aside and be open-hearted. For the rest of you, you're going to be like, yeah, big deal. But I'm going to nudge just a little bit because I want to give in a practical example because right now that was just philosophy. That was just Arlenology, right? Or you know, the bibliology, who knows what you're going to call it. But this is where the rubber meets the road, and this is where we get in trouble. I learned a long time ago, you can say all sorts of things, but until you put the jelly on the bottom shelf, it's like, oh. So let's just get the jelly on the bottom shelf and stir the pot. So as Paul begins to talk about Timothy about appointing leaders in the church of Ephesus 2,000 years ago, he says he needs to desire the office of a, of a church leader, right? Let's go back to that passage, 1 Timothy 3. The next verse, he begins to vet the process. He says, So a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. This uh, this NLT, right there, people begin to say, Aha, the first thing I see is church leaders must be men. In fact, a lot of people believe that Paul says other places, and we're not going to read all of these verses, that a woman should be silent in the church. If she has a question, go ask her husband at home. And, you know, she, she not all sorts of things. And it's all mostly found in First Timothy, by the way. It's mostly found in this letter, written to a, a, in, in, in this time. Now, usually people who argue what can women do in church will argue that they can't do certain things because of certain Bible verses. And here's what the argument comes down to. There's usually three iterations. Some people will say women are not allowed to be deacons based upon verses that we're about to see in a few verses later. Based upon those verses, they'll say they can't be deacons. Others will say, well, they could be deacons, but they can't speak or preach. Others will say, okay, they can preach and speak and they can be deacons, but they can't be senior leaders. And they all have verses or parts of verses that they use to prop that up. I'm going to try to address that a little bit here. And, uh, but what do you say? Well, I want to get to some scripture, then I'm going to reason with you after that, and then we're going to look at some other scripture and go home. Now, first of all, when it comes to deacons, I want to go down, because the next several verses talk about senior church leaders. And then in verse 8, Paul begins to tell Timothy how to vet some deacons, okay? Let's go to those verses. Deacon vetting. In the same way, deacons must be well-respected and have integrity. They must not be heavy drinkers or dishonest with money. They must be committed to—by the way, that last verse just knocked off half of us. Okay. They must be committed to the mystery of the faith, now revealed, and must live with a clear conscience. Before they are appointed as deacons, let them be closely examined. Amen. That's the, that's the principles we learn. That's the description we learn from. Let them carefully. Let them be closely examined. If they pass the test, let them serve as deacons. That's good, good principles. That's good stuff right there. Now, the next verse— is what people, some, some people believe that women can't be deacons. Because the next verse says this. In the same way, their wives must be respected and they must not slander others. They must exercise self-control and be faithful in everything they do. And so they'd say, well, it seems to me that the, this verse implies that these must be men because they have wives, although that's another conversation too. But anyhow, and, and here's what's interesting. If you look at your Bible translation, if you have your, your phone or app open or your Bible open, you probably, most Bibles are going to have a, a footnote there. The NLT does, and most of them do, next to the word wives. And if you look at it, it says that this word is also is to be tr- could be translated accurately as women, not wives. In fact, several English translations actually translate that as women, and I named a couple others, and I may have misquoted ones. I'm not afraid to say some of your more traditional ones and some of your more modern ones will translate this as, as, as um, women. But here's what, here's what it says, and he's like, one of them. There's several others. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. What's interesting about that is that those passages will also have a footnote next to them saying, some people translate this as wives. Now, why would that happen? Why would some people look at a word in ancient Greek In a time of history in the church, but by the way, in the first century when there were women deacons, by the way, as we'll see momentarily, and and then somehow centuries later in the 16, 1700s, people in in Western culture would interpret a word that talks about women as deacons and translate it as wives. Why would they do that? Why indeed? I'll tell you why in a minute. But first of all, let me show you another place. Because Paul is, I'm going to come back to that. Paul was writing a letter to another group of people. He was writing to the, to the believers in the city of Rome. And in the end of his letter to the city at Rome, Romans 16 and verse number 1, he says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church in Centria. Now, what's interesting is there are some translations that don't translate deacon there. They translate the word in the Greek to be servant. She's a servant in the church. It's the same meaning, by the way. Servant means deacon. What's interesting to me is the same question I asked a moment ago. Why in every single time is this word in the Greek, when it's translated to talk about church leaders, it always translates, that word translates always as deacon in reference to church leaders. But when it mentions a woman in that position, it says, oh, just translate it servant over there. Why do some do that? I think the answer is not that really hard. We're not living in a recent time in history where, you know, I mean, forget the world back then where women didn't have many rights. Look, can we be honest? Women have struggled historically for equal rights. Don't have to be political. Don't have to take it to extremes. Just just calm down. Just saying, we know that's true. Okay, um, in the Middle East, 2,000 years ago, in fact, most of the world 2,000 years ago, they couldn't own property. Women couldn't. They couldn't testify in court because they were women, Women, so you can't trust what they have to say. Um, they, they couldn't own property. They couldn't—in fact, the Bible was very progressive with women, by the way. Jesus also allowed women to be the first witnesses of his empty tomb and record that, which is like, well, that can't be reliable. That was the girls, you know. But Jesus did. And the church was that way. There's many of the, the women were listed in just Jesus' genealogy and amongst his closest followers. But— in culture, they were never given that regard. In fact, in most of the world's history, especially amongst religions of all types, men are usually in power and as greedy and as powerful, and women and children and the poor suffer the most. And that should not be the way with Christianity, but it has uh, unfortunately been that way. So a few hundred years ago, and even more recent times, in, a, in our Western culture, women have still struggled. Guys, let's be real. It was barely over a hundred years ago in our own country. Guys, Barely over a hundred years ago in our own country that women couldn't even vote. That's not the dark ages. That's just recent. Some of you are like, let's go back to those days, amen? Um, no. This is so, so I understand a couple hundred years ago they're translating things saying, this word always means deacon. Oh, it's a woman. Servant. Same. Go back to the, it's, it's the word. Uh, the women who serve as deacons must be this way. Oh, that's the wives. Right? But, but there's women deacons in, in the first century, in the 16th century, it's biblical. Now, you don't have to like that, some, and most of you do, but if, if, if someone doesn't, that's okay. But you surely shouldn't be fighting about it, because the scriptures are not on your side, and it's, it's just policy. There are women deacons in the Bible. Second of all, some say, okay, fine, I guess they could probably be deacons, I just i am not used to that, but Whatever but they shouldn't be able to speak or preach. Interesting story. So Paul was telling the story in the book of Acts about his missionary travels, and in Acts 21 and verse 8, it says that he said, "'Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea "'and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, "'one of the seven. Who is Philip? Philip was one of the seven people that was picked. If you remember the story in early Acts, when the church was growing, and again, they had had no structure. I I gotta pause and say this, they had no structure because Jesus didn't leave them any structure. Don't miss that. You'll miss the whole thing if you miss that. Jesus never said, before I go, thou shalt have a church and call it by this title. It shall be built in this fashion with these type of leadership structures. Jesus did none of that. He simply said, once you believe, you're going to assemble, that's my church, and go spread the good news of my love and love one another. And he gave them nothing but that. Wouldn't it have been nice if Jesus would have told them how to structure the thing? He didn't care. It's a, it's a description. He prescribed the mission. So the early church is trying to figure out how to do it. And as they grew, they ran into problems. And the, the apostles were busy. And then people couldn't get fed. And so they needed some help. So they picked seven people to become servants in food distribution. Which a lot of the ladies in our church, by the way, do today in our food pantry, in our food, food bank. They picked seven people to be distributors of, of food. And, and and as they did that, um, and they were they, they were we may call them deacons. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't deacons. It doesn't say that word there. They were men then. Our church has a lot of women doing that same role today. But the point is, is that they pointed these people. One of them was Philip. The other was Stephen. Remember, Stephen died. Philip the Evangelist was one of those seven. Look at verse 20, Look at the next verse, verse 9. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now here's what's funny to me. Every single person I know in my life, and believe me, I've got a lot of experience of this, who are diehard dogmatic people about the Bible and everything's prescriptive and it means this and this and this, every one of them will tell you that the word prophesied when used in Scripture refers to preaching. But the same people will deny that women, and we say, well, what about this word? They prophesied which is how every, the King James, every translation says they prophesied. Well, that means something different. Oh, it always means this until it doesn't mean that. Isn't that interesting? Well, what's your, what's your, what's your answer for that inconsistency? I've heard this one before. Well, it's because they were unmarried. Then they, once they got married, they, could, they had to be quiet, barefoot, pregnant, in the kitchen, cooking their husband dinner. But until then, they could go ahead and do whatever that means. I don't know. Right? I'm just pushing buttons, right? But here's the thing. I'm not telling you, you know, you need to you know, go to a church that does this or that. I'm saying this is secondary. This is model, not mission. This is the description of what the early church in the first century tried to figure out. Same with women in senior leadership roles. Heard a story just recently of a, of a phenomenally sharp woman in her church was appointed, and they hired her on staff, and they end up basically, she ran the show there because she was so gifted. Like, people are gifted, organizationally, men and women alike. And and some some people are just great leaders, organizers, team, you know, team members. And she was one of those A-plus people. And they basically told her, they said, listen, your job here is you're an executive pastor, but we can't call you that because you're a girl, so we're going to call you the office manager. Okay, that works, you know. But it's the same thing. And so it's funny. Now you say, well, that's how it was back then. Exactly, that's how it was back then. Is that prescriptive, what Jesus told them to do, why did he not give them more instructions on how to do it? Or is that descriptive, how the early church figured out how to do what they were called to do in the first century? In a world where women didn't have a lot of rights, in a world where it was very different. So I think it's prescriptive, Arlen. Okay, I'm going to push really hard, and I'm going to make some of us uncomfortable when I do this. I have been a long student of the skeptic. I told you the other day I have books in my office written by atheists and others their best arguments against Christianity. I want to know what our critics say. I listen all the time to what the critics say against our faith. One of the many criticisms they have against our faith, one of them is this. How come is it that in the Christian scriptures Jesus and the New Testament writers Uh, spoke into an existing structure of slavery and endorsed it without condemning it or saying slavery is wrong, but perpetuated it instead. Now, if you don't know that that happens, I could show you 15 Bible verses right now. I can't for sake of time. I'm going to show you like two or three or four, just it. So back to Timothy. Remember Timothy? That's the place where Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, appoint leaders in the church who want to be there. He talks about men and women should do this, women should not do that, men should do that. Same Timothy. Here's what he says in chapter six of 1 Timothy. He says, all slaves, all slaves should show full respect for their masters so they will not bring shame on the name of God and on his teaching. Isn't it interesting? Be good slaves so you'll make, you won't make the faith look bad. That's what you're supposed to do. And then he says this in verse 2, If the masters are believers, there is no excuse for being disrespectful. Why did he not say, if the masters are believers, then you'd be set free? Because they're believers, they should know better. No, if they're believers, then you have no excuse for disrespecting them. Those slaves who have believing masters, those slaves should work all the harder because of their efforts at helping other believers who are well-loved. In other words, you're serving a well-loved believer. Your master who owns you, he's well-loved and so you should be more respectful than ever because you got a good one, so be happy. These things, Timothy, encourage and teach everyone and encourage them to obey them. Verse three, some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. Well, Arlen, I I don't think it's saying, I don't like that verse. I think you're just, there's an answer. I don't have it right now, but that's, Go somewhere else. Okay, let's go to Peter. Ready? Here's Peter. First Peter three eighteen, you who are slaves must submit to two eighteen. I'm sorry, First Peter two eighteen. You who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. Now I've heard people argue that chattel slavery today was different than slavery back then. Yes and no. There are some differences, but still, it was very morally wrong. And by the way, interestingly, in American history, when we own slavery, a lot of Christian, quote-unquote Christian slave owners, use these verses to bring to their slaves to tell them, you know, to put up with what they gave to them. Obey them, not only if they're kind and reasonable, but even if they're cruel. Well, they're cruel. It doesn't matter. Obey them. For God is pleased. Don't miss this now. For God is pleased when, for conscience of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, of course you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure patiently, God is pleased with you. So in other words, if you're a slave and you've got cruel masters, oh well. If they beat you and you didn't deserve it, God's pleased when you didn't deserve it, but you take your beating like a big boy or girl. But if you had it coming, well, sorry, you had it coming so no one cares. You say, well, Arlen, Arlen, I, 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 time out. I think he's saying, if you're stuck in slavery, you can't control that. So be a good Christian in an uncontrollable situation because you have no say. So if you're a slave, you only have say so if you're the master. Oh, good point. Several verses on that. I'll pick one for you. Colossians chapter four and verse one. Masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Doesn't say masters set them free. Masters, what's wrong with you? They're human beings too. They're endowed with by their creator with uncertain, unalienable rights. All men are created equal. No, he's like, be just, just, you can have them still. Just be better than the cruel ones. Remember that you also have a master in heaven, not here. You're in charge. You're the kingpin down here. But in heaven, you got a master. So our critics are like, how come, no matter how you slice it and dice it, Jesus didn't say for the foreseeable future, as God Himself speaking into the future, the writings of the New Testament didn't say, hey, this is a problem in culture and it's going to get worse in the future even, so we're going to decry against the owning of other human beings and slavery is wrong. Why do they talk about how to exist in that framework on both ends? And that's their criticism against the Bible. Now, what do you say to them? Some of you would say, well, I'll tell you, I would say nothing to them. They're just a skeptic anyhow. I wouldn't even talk to them. Okay, that's, it. that's one way. But what if there's somebody you love? What if somebody you care about and that's, that was their hang-up all of a sudden? Do you just say, you you're, don't challenge my thinking. You can just burn. What do you say to somebody who that's their hang up? I'll give you my answer, and I have a longer answer than this. I'm not here to answer this skeptic's question, by the way. I could do that for 25, 30 minutes. I'll give you one answer to help you relieve the tension that I would give someone in that situation. I would say to a skeptic, I'd say the reason why this existed then, and you see it in the scriptures, is because when Jesus Christ came, I would say this, he did not come to fix all of the societal ills and woes. Notice that he didn't kick Rome out of power. He didn't set Israel free from Roman oppression. He didn't start a new country. He didn't write a constitution, and he didn't make a new anything. He, he simply brought the good news of the gospel Instead, if you'll go preach that God loves people and wants them back, and they'll believe that, and then because they believe that you'll come together and love each other, the rest will eventually sort itself out. And by the way, it did. As the printing press was built a few centuries ago, and people began to read the scriptures, and Judeo-Christian values uh, fled Europe and, and America today, it's amazing how that people began to say, hey, slavery's wrong. And women should be treated better. And all those of things were changed. But it took because as we have done what Jesus said to do, which is preach the good news of his love and love one another, loving one another eventually says, I can't do that to you if I love one another. I can't do that to you and be a Jesus follower. So in time, if we got the first thing first, which is believe on God's love and love other people the same way he loves us, those problems of society eventually would take care of themselves. By the time that the Christian Bibles was written, they were major cultural problems. And Jesus didn't come for a cultural reformation. He came for a spiritual reformation. So he said, put these principles into your culture. It will change everything, but it's a hot mess still today. Rome's still in charge. You don't have freedom. There's still slavery. It's a lot of bad stuff, but that's okay. I'm going to speak into the mess with Christian principles that will eventually prevail one day. That's my answer to the skeptic. Now, maybe you have a better answer. I'd love to hear it. Maybe you say we shouldn't even engage the skeptic. I'm not saying the skeptic would be satisfied with my answer. Some don't want to be satisfied. They just want to pick at Christianity. But to me, that's a good answer. And perhaps to you, you'd say, yeah, that's right. Jesus wasn't endorsing slavery. Paul wasn't endorsing slavery. Peter wasn't endorsing slavery. They were understanding that it existed, and they couldn't solve all that at a time. So in the context of where it existed, they simply said, look, do the best you can and let the God's love begin to permeate. It will change everything in time. They couldn't fix it all. It's just the way, it, it's a description of the way it was back then. I agree. But we'll turn right around and some Christians will sit there and say, but Paul also said back then that women couldn't speak in the church and do anything. And I'm like, okay. And they couldn't vote until 100 years ago either. Let's just ask ourselves a question. Are we going to be prescriptively dogmatic about those passages as they describe the church being set up in Ephesus or someplace 2,000 years ago when it comes to women and then change our argument to defend our position when it comes to slavery? Or are we going to be consistent enough to say either they're both right own who you can own. Do the best you can. Yeah. And keep women in their place. Boy, this has to be a, a white guy, isn't it? But anyhow, or or decide that that was not a condoning. That's just how the world was back then when it came to slaves and ownership and cultural and dictatorships and women. But as we read the description of how the gospel spread, Jesus simply told them to do one thing. Preach the good news to everybody and love one another as you go. And they worked it out their way. And we're here Different times of history, 400 years later, 800 years later, 1,200 years later, 1,600 years later, 2,000 years later. Figuring out how to do what Jesus told us to do in our context like they did in their context. You, you can pick a lane, but when we pick and choose, we get dangerous. Now, you say, Arlen, what are you saying about, are you saying that means that we have to be open-minded today and say that some things were just wrong back then and so people could do it? Are you saying that women should be able to do anything in the church? I am. I believe that, Yes. Because I think that's biblically consistent with our arguments of how we see and interpret Scripture. Now, um, I think it's stable when we cut off half the body of Christ, the female half, from using their gifts because they weren't born men. Their fault they should have been born men. But don't have a change either because that's wrong too. So, hey, you're stuck. Um, But I think we've made a mistake there. But even if you disagree with me, I don't care. I'm not going to fight anyone about that. You get a freedom to go to church all you want to. Here's my point today. First of all, be careful that what you're dogmatic about that you can't carry through without losing face. Make sure your your dogmatism is steeped in sound biblical answers and it's not an eclipsing issue to the gospel. And second of all, quit fighting with other people who do it differently than you. Why do Christians have such opinions about this stuff? Jesus gave us a mission. Preach the good news to everybody, spread the message. And love one another so the world will know that you're together on your faith and they'll believe that you have something to say to them that's worth hearing instead of looking at you seeing you fight over all these things. That's not how you do it. What in the world? No wonder the world's turned their back on Christianity. We all killing each other over descriptions of things that weren't the mission Jesus gave in the first place. So here's the thing I'm saying today. Date the model. Now, men... Don't go home and say to your wife, Hey, the pastor said I could go date a model. That's not what I'm saying here, okay? Don't get any wise ideas. Date the model. Marry the mission. Date the methods, marry the mission. Models and methods will change through time and cultures and technologies and opportunities and understandings and the way things are. That's just how things go. So date the model, date the methods, that's fine. Marry the mission. It never changes. We are as as called today as ever to take the message of God's salvation and love to all people and to love one another as believers in our church and amongst other churches as we take that mission forward. That's Jesus' mandate. That's his prescription. And we can learn throughout history, not just, not just first century Christianity in the, in the New Testament, but also fourth century Christianity, 16th century Christianity. We can learn from Christian history some great principles about how they did it in their church model. But date the model and date the methods, but marry the mission. Be focused on spreading the good news of God's love, and be flexible on how to do it best. That's how you be the moon. Because the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. And I cringe. I've been in, I look. I know it's time to go. I got to stop right now. But I'm going to say this. I've been in this a long time. Raised in church. Raised as a preacher's kid, a pastor now for many years. I've been in fundamental Baptist movements, and I've been in, I I, I studied this all my life. I've watched the the, the debate, and I've seen Christianity lose. We've lost our ground because we're so infighting over secondary issues. We're so busy minoring on the minors and not majoring on the majors. And I watch it happening everywhere, and the Christians who are doing it, you can't tell them. You, You say, they're so angry about their fighting that you say, hey, you're wrong. Don't tell me I'm wrong. The Bible says, you know, and you're like, okay. And, and, and I think that a lot of Christians, they're going to go down to their, their personal grave, their church's eventual grave, and the movement's grave, saying we've lost all ability to be effective, but we were right. And I'm like, you missed it, man. There's a mission here. Go preach the message of God's love and love one another as you figure out how that looks in your context. And don't fight over that stuff. The mission, the prescription that Jesus gave. And he didn't give us any more. Wouldn't it have been nice if he gave us more? If I wrote one epistle to all people and Jesus gave a whole list of instructions how to do it. He just said, do this. And we're trying to do it. And at the very least, we should all be open-handed. And keep the main thing. The main thing. Love each other. Spread God's love. Make a difference. I'm going to stop today. We're going to put the questions. We give you questions for discussion in case you want those for your family or group. We're not going to do it up here because we're out of time. We're going to post them online. So go to our website. You'll find them there. Probably when? Tomorrow. We'll be on there tomorrow. Number two, I usually give you an assignment to go help us before our community. In the back, there are car magnets that say Four Cedar Lake, and there are cards that you can fill out that help you write a note to somebody. I gave you some assignments the last couple weeks. I was gonna give you another assignment today, but it'll take me like three minutes to explain it. I don't have three minutes left. So here's what I want you to do. Next week, we'll give you a really cool assignment I'm excited to tell you about to help you do something in the community that might get noticed and help us be Four Cedar Lake. I'm not gonna do it today because we're out of time. But for today, as you get ready to close in prayer and one last song and go home, I wanna ask us, Come back, we're going to continue talking about eclipsed, how we block the light we're called to reflect. Maybe today's issue was easy for you, but next week's might be, might be kind of in the middle of your craw. Maybe this one was very hard. I just want us all to ask ourselves this. We're called to be the moon. He's the light. Are we reflecting the, what he was trying to do when he, when he so loved the world that he gave his life and his son so we could be saved? Are we reflecting that into this world and making a difference? Or does the world look at us and see an eclipse of bickering and fighting about how we interpret how to best do what Jesus called us to do? I think it's pretty clear what he called us to do. It's major on the majors, minors on the minors. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Let's be the moon and not eclipse the sun.